This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2021, 235 million people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the people affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. She does not want to remember, but she is here and memory is gathering bones. She has come by foot and by bus to Addis Ababa. Across terrain she has chosen to forget for nearly 40 years. She is two days early, but she will wait for him, seated on the ground in this corner of the train station, the metal box on her lap, her back pressed against the wall, rigid as a sentinel. She has put on the dress she does not wear every day. Her hair is neatly braided and sleek, and she has been careful to hide the long scar that puckers at the base of her neck and trails over her shoulder like a broken necklace. In the box are his letters, le lettere, el mio segreto hirut anche il tuo segreto, segreto, secret, mister. You must keep them for me until I see you again. Now go, hurry before they catch you. There are newspaper clippings with dates spanning the course of the war between her country and his. She knows he has arranged them from the start, 1935, to nearly the end, 1941. In the box are photographs of her, those he took on Fucelli's orders and labeled in his own neat handwriting, una bella ragazza, una soldata feroce, and those he took of his own free will, memento scavenged from the life of the frightened young woman she was in that prison, behind that barbed wire fence, trapped in terrifying nights, that she could not free herself from. Inside the box are the many dead that insist on resurrection. Welcome to Stories and Humanitarian Action. We began today's podcast with our guest author, Maza Mengesti, reading a selection from her book, The Shadow King. Thank you for that powerful opening. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you so, so much for making the time to speak with me. Not a problem. Your project sounds so interesting. Yeah, I'm very passionate about it. And uh, in fact, as I was preparing for, to speak to you, I was also actually listening to some of the interviews you have been doing. Yes. Which has been actually sort of uh, encouraging for me because... The Shadow King is also historical fiction. Mm-hmm. It does lend itself in many ways towards my project in a sense of exploring actually the power of storytelling. Yeah, but I also just want to say, I mean, it's a great book. It's really, really well written, the story. I know you've written, of course, it's The Shadow King, which we are going to talk about, uh, The Lion Beneath the Gaze. Mm-hmm. And all these are stories about war. Is this a deliberate choice you've made to write about war? 
I don't know if it's a choice as much as uh, it has always been a natural inclination, partly because that's what I was constantly surrounded by. You know, I, I was in Ethiopia when the revolution started. So right from the beginning, um, part of the memories of my childhood involved that aspect of living as well. So it has been a part of me for as long as I can remember. But, you know, thinking about war also means thinking about love, thinking about what people try to save or who people try to save or the questions of what survives and people's dignity and, uh, you know, their hopes and their dreams. So war helps us think about all those things. And for a writer, it's also very interesting territory because when you're writing about war, you're writing about characters where the stakes are so high and it really crystallizes questions about moral ethics, about survival and what we do to maintain peace. Shadow King, what is the Shadow King about? Uh, the Shadow King is set in 1935, and it is uh, during Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. It focuses on women who fought in the front lines with men in, uh, for the Ethiopian army during this time. It, I also tell the story from the Italian side because I was very interested in what what does the colonial enterprise look like from the side of the European? What do they think of Africans? How do they navigate and negotiate um, and make peace with what they're doing there? So it's told from both sides of the battle lines and particularly I focus on female soldiers. And having read the book, um, I know it's Hiro too, who's waiting. Uh, I know it's Atore. You know, wanting these letters, and I know uh, Fuccelli yes. is the uh, Kano. What were the relationships between these three characters, Hirut, Fuccelli, and Ettore? Fuccelli is the the colonel in the Italian army, and his soldier is Ettore. Ettore is Jewish Italian. He's also brought his camera to war. And Fuccelli makes use of that camera and makes use of Ettore's talent. And Ettore is forced uh, uh, or has to obey um, in, in photographing different acts of violence that Fuccelli is, is enacting on Ethiopians. Uh, Hirut is a soldier. She's a maid who eventually becomes a soldier in the Ethiopian army. I don't want to say too much, but she mm -hmm. is at some point forced to, to deal with um, the colonel, Fuccelli and Ettore. And they are enemies, but I think uh, between Ettore and Hirut, there develops a, a recognition that in many ways they are both people who are despised by Italy for various reasons. Uh, and thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that, you know, at least for my project and also my own work, 
we really look at the scale of humanitarian crisis, the scale of wars, and try to look at, you know, to communicate about the impact of it, to raise awareness and advocacy. We tend to look at the scale of it, which is extremely important. But war is very individualized. Um, and every experience is of an individual, you know, of a child, of a man, of a woman, of an elderly person. And if you could just maybe tell me a little bit more when you were, de you know, developing all of these characters. When we think of groups of people, when we think of the issues that confront them, we tend to start thinking of them as singular entities, you know, just collective masses of people without understanding the individual lives that are really at stake. And uh, I wanted to th break apart this war and start looking at individual people. Uh, what was Fuccelli like? You know, that was really a question that I wanted to deal with. Um, we can talk about the colonialist or we can talk about colonialism, but who were those individuals that were there? And what motivated them? What guided them besides hatred, which is sometimes a little too simple? Right. What else is it that guided them to even decide to join a military or join an expedition? What were they like at home? And how is it that their background that is separate from anything African has an influence on how they treat Africans? I was curious about those aspects of, of the, I guess, the interior worlds, and also the same with Ettore. What what did he leave behind? Who does he miss? What advice is he being given? Who does he listen to? Does he have any choices? You know, is he frightened of Africans? Is he frightened of Ethiopians? Is he frightened of a female soldier? I, I wanted to really look at those questions. And the same for Hirut. You know, Italians thought that Africans could not really think conceptually, that they lack all imagination, that the only things in their lives were about survival, that they don't have dreams, they don't have talent, they don't have creative talent. I wondered if I put Ettore and Hirut together in the same place how would that racist thinking conflict or you know what would happen if he saw her and suddenly could say this is somebody who actually has a brain and who's thinking and Hirut has no concept of what these you know Europeans are like and she thinks that they are nothing but beasts that they are nothing but cruel animals with no real human emotion and uh, I wanted to look at what happens when two people who have very different ideas of what the other is like might begin to recognize something in the other. Uh, but you can only do that when you stop thinking of the collective and begin to think of the individual. Could you talk to me about the role Ethiopian women played in this story? Yes, well, you know, there's, there's the traditional role which was also present, but that's the only role I understood at first, was that women were there to be the caretakers. They would cook the food, collect the water, um, take care of the wounded, bury the dead. 
follow the army to do those things. But it was only in research I found that women enlisted to be part of the military, to be part of the army, and they fought. And when I discovered that, it completely changed the story because I had their traditional roles. And those were the things I heard about, but I didn't know this other side. And you know, the one thing that people do not speak enough of when we speak of this war is the sexual violence that the Italians um, perpetrated on East Africans. And that has been a history that no one really talks about in Ethiopia. You just see the children who are of mixed race, you know, in the next generation and the next generation, but no one talks about how that happened. And it was one thing that I really felt that I needed to address because um, I think we know now that sexual assault and rape is a weapon in war. Uh, and when it was happening in 1935, no one spoke about it. It wasn't until I, I started to focus on individuals that I really had to, had to address this on an individual level. Um, I understood that, that rape and sexual violence is a weapon in war, but what does that look like in the life of one individual or two? You know, how does it change Hirut? How does it change any other woman in the book that is assaulted? Um, I had to look at that. And that's when it really, the impact of it, um, I, it really became powerful for me because we can speak of it in terms of, you know, percentages, which is what I was doing. But when you have to look at one life and how it's changed as a result, how every decision or every step in life is impacted by that, it was profound to, to understand that. And if we multiply that by how many women and girls have been going through this for millennia, but I mean, just in the recent history, you realize how so many other decisions really boil down to those moments of, of intimate terror that happen. There's a scene there after Hurot um, is raped and the following day and she's finding her way back joining the women and there's a dynamic there among them. Yeah. And can you talk to me a little bit about that? I think when women are existing in a world that is so violently patriarchal, and patriarchy is violence, um, but when women exist in that, rather than think about ways to overthrow it, it's sometimes easier and faster to just accept it, but try to get some of the power that's within that system so that women are not bonding together, you know, against, let's say, the male violence, but are really fighting each other to see if they can get closer to that level of power. Um, you know, we, we can see it in terms of Aster and the way she treats Hirut. There's a 
very clear sense of class there. Uh, but Aster herself is a woman in a system that is run by men, but at least she has Hirut to treat less than her. At least she has Hirut to, to show that she has power within this system as well. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to convey is that within these systems, women try to gain whatever power they can, but it is often at the expense of other women. And the divisions can happen by ethnicity or by class, by social standing, um, but it's there. And sometimes women think that if you have, if you can place yourself as close as possible to the big man, it gives you power. If the man who is assaulting you has a social standing that's really high, then lucky you, you know, at least you have some of that power just through that. And I, it's because they don't recognize that as real violence. They, they don't think of themselves as worthy enough to be thought of as uh, someone who has rights and does not, you know, does not deserve that assault. Right. And that's so, I, I, that paragraph actually in many ways broke me. I, mm. I, I, it, it, yeah, it really broke me because I remember just reading what had just happened to this, you know, to hear it. And then, yeah. um, but at the same time, I also did want to ask you about class. And there's a point where, you know, Asta and Hirot are in prison. And Hirot is having this internal monologue, I believe, looking at Asta and where you basically write about the unspoken rules for those who were born to carry rich histories and noble blood. There are ways the world must move in order to keep everything intact. Mm-hmm. And girls with scars must recognize their place amongst those who make scars. How is this? My reading of it is that she still felt Asta was having it much worse mm-hmm. than she was. Uh, what's going on there? And how entrenched is you know th- th- these class relations among the characters? How entrenched are they? You know. I had to keep in mind that I could not force my own 21st century ideals onto Hirut and Aztec, because I think that the most, the modern way to do this is that very quickly Hirut understands she's, she is worth as much as Aztec and begins to really rebel. But the reality is that In 1935, when a young girl has only been as far as the market from where she was born, has nobody around her except those people who tell her exactly her place in the world, um, she's not not going to think the way I do. And I wanted to convey that reality, which is despite everything, she is still following the rules of the society in which she lives. Aster does too for, for, uh, you know, for a lot of that. She still listens to her husband, even when she doesn't want to. They still follow those basic rules because that's the world that they live in. And that moment that you, that you are noting is that a sense of that. Hirut is 
very much a, a product of her world. Despite everything, there are still certain rules that stay in place. Then one of the other aspects of the story I liked a lot, you don't really portray them as victims. The reason I wanted to ask you about this again, at least in humanitarian aid, um, sometimes the narrative doesn't really portray the people as strong, mm -hmm. as dignified, mm -hmm. as resilient. And so again, this is something I just wanted to ask you, why was this so important to this story? Uh, I think part of it is to move, move that narrative outside of just victimhood. Um, and it's possible to be resilient and still vulnerable. It's possible to be strong and still feel pain. And I feel like we tend to position people who are survivors, always victims or always resilient. And both of them are, I think, are forms of, of de potentially dehumanizing that person because no one is necessarily completely a victim, but no one is 100% resilient either. And so how do we, I think the question is, how do we recognize every human being as individual with levels of vulnerability and levels of strength? Like no one should be forced to be resilient. No one should be forced to do that because that speaks to a survival of against abuses and no one should have to do that in life. So how do we recognize that resilience is not something no one has, that, that actually speaks to a series of deprivations, but how do we recognize people's vulnerabilities and strengths and begin to work with that as opposed to swinging between victimhood and resilience? The paragraphs you read at the beginning, um, therein is, you know, the, you know, Hero is remembering so many have died. And these, there's so many points in the stories where this theme comes about. And of course, when we deal with war, so many people go missing. And so many characters were afraid that no one would remember them. And I remember the cook also really talking to some of the prisoners and asking them to tell her their names so that they could uh, be remembered. Can you just talk to me about the significance of this? Um, and I guess in many ways it's, it's the loss, mm. but there was this theme of memory throughout the story, um, remembering people's name. And that, in that paragraph as well, something happens for Hirut as she's reading out these names. Yeah, you know, it's this idea of naming is something that's always been important to me. And I think it, it comes from, maybe it comes from being an immigrant, but you know, coming here to the US, if you have a name that does not sound Western, you're confronted immediately with the difference between you and the world that you live in. And I, I became very much aware of who I was by, by my name in the United States. But I also understood in Ethiopia, and I think this is, this is part of cultures across Africa and, and across other parts of the world, that our names, is a, it's a connection to family, which is a connection to a community of people, which is also a connection to a region of the country 
that, you know, my name might connect to one specific region, my father's name. And I, I wanted to, uh, to show some of that inheritance through a name, through names in the book. Um, when, when my characters say their names, they're not saying only their name, but they're, they're speaking of history that the Italians wanted to ignore. And they're speaking of a history that the West has said does not exist, that never existed. Uh, so that was a really important thing for me. Um, and because Italians did not fully recognize all of the people that they killed, uh, they never gave them names. Um, uh, you know, there were there were more than they named, or the more than they listed. I wanted to use the book as a way to compensate for some of that. Right. And love. So the story, of course, it's war, it's 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 violence, but there were also a lot of uh, moments of love. And here, you know, I'm thinking about Hirut, uh, Akililu. Um, but there was also, and you talked about it at the beginning of the, of the interview, the dreams everyone had, the hopes. There's a moment there when the cook gives herself up for Hirut. There were all of these acts of kindness. And, you know, they, I always felt there's this ability of war to bring the worst out of humanity, but also the best out of humanity. And can you just talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, because I think people needed to come together to some degree, even like the cook, even if people like the cook did not want, let's say, um, a return of a, the old system, maybe if they wanted to free themselves fully from the way Ethiopia existed, um, the cook understood that, but that that's one thing, but she could not have survived without help, let's say from Fifi. And there were people who needed her also for just individual survival. Um, this war required the efforts of communities and not everyone was united, but there were people who were willing to help their neighbors out. And that, you know, that's a different thing. And I think um, I wanted to show that as well through the cook. Uh, this was not, it's not, they, these people needed each other, that love that you're talking about. There was something that they needed to fight for that was greater than what somebody might say Ethiopia is. Um, it was something about neighborly, brotherly, sisterly love. It was something about understanding that the human being next to you might suffer and you didn't want that. What is the one thing that you'd like the readers of The Shadow King to take away from the book? I think how each of us are carriers of history. And during this pandemic, we have, we've been living through a historical moment. And the one thing that I have understood that is that everybody's perspective of this moment counts. And I hope that there are people out there recording their stories in journals, in diaries, in personal notes that they have for themselves, maybe no one else. But I hope people keep a, a written record of this moment, a personal written record, uh, so that 
when we look back at this history, the way I had to look back in 1935, it will be, um, this will be a history told from a collective of many different voices. Oh, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band.